Amen. He is alive. That's why we're here and millions of others are meeting in churches all around the world right now to, or today to celebrate this day. Um, man, it's so good to be back here together. Uh, two years ago, we were here, but you weren't here. Um, it was pretty empty when we did this live on online. And then um, a year ago, we were all down in the parking lot, or many of us were down in the parking lot uh, celebrating together, but outdoors. And it's just really good to be together in here today. Um, you know, we started this series actually on the Gospel of Mark um, at, on the first Sunday of uh, January of last year. And uh, I wish I could say I'd planned it this way for it to end today with the resurrection, but um, it's just the way it worked out or the way God worked it out. Um, you know, we've said from the beginning, as we look at the gospel of Mark, and I invite you to take your Bibles and <clears throat> turn with me to Mark chapter 16. And you have your outline in the worship folder, if you've got a worship folder, and you can uh, turn there. We've said since the beginning that the, the key verse in this gospel is Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. The last couple of weeks, we've looked at the greatest <clears throat> and most historical event um, in all of history, when God the Son died on the cross. And the people around Jesus were ridiculing him and beating him, and as we just saw in the video, it was about the most brutal death you can even imagine. And these spiritually blind people did not realize that it was Jesus and only through Jesus, death for them on the cross, that they would be able to have forgiveness and salvation. Acts chapter four, verse 12, you have it on your outline, says, and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Apostle Paul was one of the most brilliant men ever. Paul went to pagan, intellectual, and immoral Corinth in Greece, and he said to the Corinthians, I am determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So why did Paul say that? Because the only way we can have forgiveness, the only way we, we can live beyond this life in heaven is by way of the cross. We have broken God's law. We deserve death. And the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said it. I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so God said, I'll give my son. I'll let him die. I'll let him take judgment for you. And if you put your faith and trust in my son, God says, I will forgive your sins. I will give you eternal life and I will give you inner peace and joy. And so you have this on your outline. If you're taking notes, the most relevant message in the world 
this morning is the fact that Christ died for you. On that Friday night, when Jesus died, from the disciples' perspective, all hope died. And we know that after that, we know what happens after that, but they didn't know. And hope really died with them. Someone described people who live today without Christ in their lives are Saturday people. They live in so much hurt and so much misery and so much fear, and they have no hope. Without the hope that the resurrection gives, we would all be living like that. That's why this day is so important for us. And again, the apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he said, uh, again on your outline, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. You know, the Greek word for gospel is the word euangelion. And it literally means good news or the joy news. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien is an author I know some of you are familiar with, says that a lot of stories uh, are really just these incredibly hopeless situations. And some character comes along who has a weakness that in reality is a strength, and they save the day. And this brings deep joy. Tolkien called them eucatastrophes, or the joyful catastrophe. And he describes the account of Jesus and the death and the resurrection of Jesus as the ultimate eucatastrophe. Tolkien said these stories are like a, a bass string in the human heart that kind of makes our heart reverberate. But you can't pluck that bass string. He says that the gospel story of Jesus' death and resurrection uh, is, is the only thing that can pluck that string so that the whole heart never stops reverberating and vibrating with joy. And Tolkien says the reason for this is that the account of the death, burial, and resurrection is the reality to which all these other stories point. And so, again, on your outline, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus really happened. And this proves, and this is a, a blank for you to fill in if you want, that God, but this is the truth that you need to have in your heart. God loves you extravagantly. That's how much he loves you. So through the resurrection, <clears throat> Jesus, the sacrificial servant, lands the final victory blow against Satan. This is the heart of the gospel, the good news, the euangelion. All four of the New Testament's biographies, what we call the gospel accounts, describe the resurrection as an actual historical event. Jesus was placed in the tomb on Friday, but when Sunday came, the tomb was empty. The seal was broken. Jesus is the risen Lord. He is risen from the dead. 
So I think we'd all say that what happened on Easter uh, is the decisive point in history. Uh, It's maybe not as familiar to us as the Christmas story. Uh, And and so what I'd like to do is read the Easter story together. Uh, From Mark chapter 16, follow along in your Bibles as we begin at verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is God's word. You know, in most ancient manuscripts, in in the most ancient manuscripts we have, Mark ends at verse 8. And it's surprising that Mark doesn't end with great courage, but with these women fleeing in silence. And we've talked about this before, but every ancient culture agreed that women's inferiority made them unreliable. They couldn't even be witnesses in any legal proceedings. And so in the first century, it would have been an embarrassment if you were trying to get the pagan world and the Jewish world to believe in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, These women, especially if they were the main witnesses, it just wouldn't make sense. But what we learn is that the presence of women is one of the proofs that these events actually happened. Because if you were making this up, you wouldn't make women the main witnesses to it. And another proof to the resurrection is the way this story ends in Mark, which is probably the earliest of the Gospels. Uh, If somebody made this story up, they wouldn't end it this way. In fact, some people tried to add alternate endings to the book, and they're, they're a compilation of other passages, usually of Scripture, and they're really often good endings. Uh, You can see these endings in many different translations. But again, this is on your outline. One of the things that separates Christianity from Buddhism, Judaism, or Islam is that Christianity traces its beginnings to one event that happened one day in history. Christianity is based on the truth of what happened in history. One day there was no such thing as the church. And then overnight, the church is born. From one day to the next, there's suddenly a group of people who believed in the resurrection of Jesus. 
and even suffered the most extraordinary things for his sake. Because of the resurrection, we know the end of the story. We know the big picture, if you will. It says in Matthew 19, 26, that with God, all things are possible. So I I think the way we live our lives is to say that we should never be too quick to come to any conclusion about what the Lord is in. Because sometimes God does miracles. Don't believe it? Just ask David, young teenage David. All he had was a sling and a stone. And he went up against Goliath and you would think he had no chance whatsoever. But God came through. Don't believe it. You can ask the Israelites as they were fleeing from Egypt when they had the Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptian army behind them and nowhere to go. And against nature, God opened up the water and allowed Moses and the Hebrews to walk across on dry land. Who would have thought it? Or how about a place called Golgotha and a tomb, an empty tomb, a sealed tomb that in the end was empty? Just ask those who follow Jesus. So let's comb through our passage here uh, at, at the beginning in verse one. When the Sabbath was over, would have been at sundown or probably around 6 p.m., So these same three women, this is the third time we've seen their names, were mentioned at the crucifixion. They go to anoint the body of Jesus. These women didn't expect to see Jesus alive. That's why they were on their way to the tomb. The anointing wasn't a practice of the Jews. Uh, It says bought spices so they might go and show their love and devotion for Jesus, who they had loved and been with for these, these days and weeks and months before. It also helped to reduce the smell that you would get from a decomposing body in a hot climate like Israel. The phrase, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, indicates the women waited till Sunday morning. It was going to be too dark if they went right after the Sabbath was over on Saturday night. And the question in their minds is in verse three. Look at verse three. Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? Uh, The stone would have been impossible for them to move. It would have taken a a group of people to move it. Uh, Matthew 27 tells us, as we saw in the video, that guards had been posted and a seal uh, had been put on the tomb. And a person, as you heard in the video, would be punished severely, probably even put to death if that seal had been broken. These women would not have known what had taken place. So when they arrive at the tomb, can you even imagine? They're greeted with a surprise. Look at verse four. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Mark doesn't say who moved the stone. We know it had to be a supernatural act to do it. Uh, I, I believe it was God who moved the stone. God moved the stone out of the way. An angel described in verse five is, and please note that this is a young man dressed in white robe sitting at the right side as an angel. Uh, inside the tomb, the, the angels were witnesses of the resurrection. 
God saw what was going on. You know, and this is, again, on your outline. Even if we don't see, even if you in your life don't see God working, it doesn't mean that he's not working. God is working in your life. He's working behind the scenes. When you call out to him and you don't think he's there, he's there. He is working in your life. He's drawing you to himself. Even though we think he's not paying attention to us, he is. God is working on your behalf even if you don't think he is. And look at the response of the women in verse 5. And they entered the tomb. They were alarmed. They were surprised. They were worried. Who stole the body? And the angel tries to calm their fears in verse 6. Don't be alarmed, he says. He knew they were looking for Jesus the Nazarene. He said, look, you've got the right place. This is the right tomb. You didn't go to the wrong tomb by accident. See the place where they laid him, it says in verse 6. And he tells them, Jesus has risen. He is not here. The angel made it clear that the bodily resurrection of Jesus had happened. There were dozens of people over the years before this who had claimed to be the Messiah. And then when they were put to death, their followers would go home because their What they had started was over. The movement was done. So why was this one so different? Well, the gospel writers wrote that this one was different because their leader was killed and then he came back from the dead. He was alive. And that changed everything. That's why Jesus' followers didn't go home. That's why Christianity exploded What does this mean for us today? Well, I'll tell you one thing it means, and again, this is on your outline, is that Jesus tells you the truth. Throughout history, many people have claimed to be God. They've claimed to be the Messiah, but only one proved it. Paul writes, Jesus was, in Romans 1, Jesus was declared to be God's son with great power by rising from the dead. You say, great, the cross is great, but he proved that what happened on the cross was he really did take our sins because he rose again to prove it. Without the resurrection, you couldn't trust anything Jesus says. But you can trust what Jesus says about God, what he says about heaven, what he says about everything else he taught. We can believe it, and we should believe it, because he rose from the dead like he said he would. And then in verse 7, the angel told the women, go and tell his disciples and Peter. You know, I think this is really interesting how he says this. Because it shows that Jesus had concern for all of his disciples, but especially Peter. Why? Well, more than any of the other disciples, Peter needed reassurance. He needed encouragement during these dark times. Remember what he did. He denied Jesus. If Jesus' message had been, Jesus wants to see you all in Galilee, you know what I think Peter would have said? I think Peter would have said, you guys go. That can't mean me. Not after what I've done. But what Peter did 
It, it had indeed been worse than what any of the other disciples did. And Jesus knew that. And so it's like Jesus saying, I have great plans for all of you. And that means you too, Peter. You also need to go to Galilee. And what does this say to us? This says to us, and you've got it on your outline, that God loves you, again, we need to say it, extravagantly. God cared enough to send you his very best. And if you would have been the only person on the face of this earth, God loves you so much that he would have sent Jesus to die for you. That's how extravagant his love is. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he had outstretched arms and he said, this is how much I love you. Peter needed to know that he'd been forgiven. He needed to know that he'd been restored. John's gospel describes how Jesus did that in John chapter 21. It's on your outline, but I hope you go home this afternoon and read it. It's, it's pretty cool. And because he messed up the most, Peter... I believe Peter's repentance was the deepest. And his grasp on the grace of God was, was the greatest. And that will make him the most qualified person to be a leader in the Jesus movement, in the church. And Peter, it seems, as he's the resource, remember, for Mark's gospel, um, that, that Peter wanted us to know and this again is on your outline, that no matter what we have done, God's gracious hand of forgiveness can bring us back. Even in your darkest moments of despair, we all have those dark moments. Jesus is there. Look at the next verse that you've got on the outline. God gives us this amazing promise in Hebrews 13, 5, and this is from the Amplified. And what the Amplified Version does is, is give you a sense in English of what they read when they were reading it in Greek. And, and in the Greek, there's no, there's no limit on how many negatives you can put on a sentence. And so he piles them on here, the writer to the Hebrews. And he says, for God himself has said, I will not in any way fail you nor give you up nor leave you without support. I will not, I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless, nor forsake, nor let you down, nor relax my hold on you, assuredly not. Believe that truth. The angel in verse seven reminded them to go to Galilee and meet Jesus. And why Galilee? Jesus said he was gonna meet there with all of his disciples as well as the larger community of his followers. And here he would give them the last minute instructions that they needed before his ascension into heaven. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, God can come to you with a, a word of grace like he did to Peter. The Bible is God's love letter to you. Actually, it's 66 love letters to you. And so... Peter, the biggest foul up, the biggest mess up, the biggest mistake maker that, that you could imagine comes to the greatest repentance. 
And in verse 8, Mark describes the women as trembling and bewildered, and they fled from the tomb. Boy, these women definitely needed to process what they'd seen. They needed to collect their thoughts. And so it says at the end of verse 8, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Anyway, who would believe them? Who would believe them because they're women? Who would believe them because this is what they were saying, that Jesus rose from the dead? In such a male-dominated society as the first century was. And after the women composed themselves, they finally did explain everything they saw. And in Luke 24, it says, In returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. To anyone who would listen, they told them. Uh, William Lane, in his commentary on Mark, says this, The ending of Mark at verse 8 is thoroughly consistent with the motifs of astonishment and fear developed throughout the gospel. These motifs express the manner in which Mark understands the events of Jesus' life. Bishop Melito of Sardis uh, lived from 100 to 180 uh, after the death of Jesus. And he imagined what Jesus would say on Easter morning, and, and this is what he wrote, I am your forgiveness. I am the Passover of your salvation. I am the lamb that was sacrificed for you. I am your ransom. I am your light. I am your savior. I am your resurrection. I am your king. I am leading you up to the heights of heaven. I will show you the eternal father. I will raise you up by my right hand. And so we, as children of the resurrection, live in the historical and intellectual and emotional reality of this day of the resurrection. Every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday. And next to the empty tomb and the witness of God's word, it's God's children, we are to live resurrection lives. We're to live our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you as a believer in Christ, as a follower of Jesus. Charles Colson, uh, many of you know that name. Uh, at one time he was a, uh, the right-hand man of, of the president and uh, went to jail for a thing called Watergate. Some of you will know what that means. Others of you will will go, I have no idea what that is. Uh, but uh, he went from the heights of power to prison himself. And um, he was going through this friend of his who was a writer with all of these proofs for the resurrection, all of these proofs for Jesus being God. And his friend was, uh, listened very politely, but didn't respond, remained skeptical. But Colson said, Man, he said, I, I wish my friend could have been with me as I visited a prison in Indiana one Easter where, where he saw what he called firsthand evidence that Christ did indeed rise from the grave. So let me give you the backstory a little bit of what happened. Um, so again, it wasn't scientific proof but it was lives that Colson saw in the face of great hopelessness that showed the power of the resurrection. 
And the question we need to ask ourselves is, do, do, do our lives show the power of the resurrection? So there were two people involved in uh, the events, the backstory to what Colson experienced. One man was a, a judge, a former judge. William Bontrager was his name. The other young man was an army veteran, Fred Palmer, uh, who had been arrested uh, for home, home robberies. And Fred Palmer had accepted Christ while he was in prison. Uh, of, he'd been guilty of these robberies and he was, he was waiting his sentencing. Uh, Palmer's offenses carried a mandatory 10 to 20 year sentence. And uh, 18 days after he was arrested, that was determined to be um, too harsh and was actually changed. And so the judge, who's also a new Christian, reviews this case of Fred Palmer carefully and realized that a 10 year sentence, the minimum that he was supposed to give him uh, would destroy him would destroy Palmer, not rehabilitate him. And so the judge followed the new guidelines that had put in place 18 days after Palmer had been arrested. And he gave him one year to serve and he made him reimburse all the people that he had stolen from and then do community service. So Palmer, Palmer the prisoner, was a model prisoner. He was released after a year, had started to make uh, pay back his victims, make restitution. <clears throat> and the case seemed closed. Justice, restitution, restoration was happening. But the Indiana Supreme Court said that what Judge Bontrager had done was illegal. And they ordered him to send Palmer back to prison for nine more years. And it seemed so unjust and if he had been arrested three weeks later, the sentence would have been perfect. It was carried out to the letter. So as a judge and a new Christian, Bontrager saw it from God's perspective. He, and he said, I just want justice to be done. I believe it was be done. It was done and I'm not gonna do something else just to satisfy a technicality of the law. Let's look at the spirit of the law not the letter of the law. And so the judge, in the end, decided to recuse himself because he refused to give him nine more years. And what followed was a nightmare for both Judge Bontrager and Fred Palmer. Palmer was returned to prison for nine more years. And right away appealed for an early release. Judge Bontrager was declared to be in contempt the Supreme Court fined him $500 and sent him to jail uh, for one month. And proceedings started in order to remove him from the bench. Well, rather than allow his own case to mess up Palmer's appeal for a shorter sentence, the judge resigned. Came at a cost. He had a comfortable salary. He had a position of respect in the community. His outspoken faith raised a ton of suspicion about him. 
He tried opening a new law practice, but it wasn't going well. Clients just weren't there. And his wife told Chuck Colson, he said, we're waiting on the Lord. She said, we're waiting on the Lord to provide. And so we're learning patience. And we're hoping those we owe money to will be patient with us as well. And this was what was happening when Chuck Colson invited the judge and his wife to go with him to worship to a worship service that he was leading in the prison where Fred Palmer was. As soon as they got to the area where the service was held, Judge Bontrager spotted Fred Palmer and ran. And Colson said it like this, he said, <clears throat> the tall, lanky ex-judge embraced the young ex-thief as tears rolled down both their cheeks. And then Colson writes this, as I watched their reunion, the witness was clear. A man giving up a respected, comfortable life to fight for what was right for someone else that he loved. In a very hostile world, this is evidence that Christ lives. The ex-judge Bontrager was a country boy at heart who wore cowboy boots and string ties. He wasn't perfect. He makes mistakes. All of us who testify for Christ know that we don't have to be perfect to testify for Christ. And Colson continues, if, if they were one of the mightiest witnesses, a rough fisherman named Peter, if, if they were witnesses, then one of his mightiest witnesses, a rough fisherman named Peter, would never have been called to serve. But Peter saw the resurrected Christ, and his life revealed that truth. And then Colson finishes with these words, I wish my writer friend could have been with me on that Easter morning. For none of us who watched Bontrager and Palmer, brothers of Christ embracing in this prison, in this modern day tomb, could doubt that Jesus, the prisoner who was executed, rose from his tomb and lives today. And so on your outline, you've got this, our lives are arguments for the resurrection that the world understands and the world needs. And that's why we need to be bold and speak up about our faith. And so are you living like it's Saturday in hopelessness and pessimism? Or are you living with the hope and the joy of Easter Sunday? The Bible is full of commands. And you know what the most common command is? Don't be afraid. You'll find it in scripture about 365 times, one for each day of the year. Including several times in this Easter story. Don't be afraid. Those were the first words out of the mouth of the angel to the women. They were also the first words Jesus spoke after the resurrection. It's no wonder that it's a common theme in the Bible and the Easter story because fear is our biggest problem. It's one of the most common. And you might think that you're not a fearful person, but I don't think we realize how many decisions we make are based on fear. 
the fear of what other people think. The fear of failure. But Easter brings good news. And this, again, is on your outline. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can now live without fear. When you understand that Jesus tells the truth and that you can trust what he says, it becomes easier to let go of your fears. So what is it that you fear? You fear what people think? You fear failure? You fear that you're not good enough? Do you fear disappointing others? Maybe you fear loneliness or rejection or something bad happening or being judged or getting COVID. I think we could all relate to that. When you live according to the resurrection of Christ, the Bible says you can live a better life, a life free from fear. John, the writer of the Gospel of John, said in 1 John chapter 4, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. There's no fear in love. Another thing that we can know because of the resurrection, and this is again on your outline, is that death isn't the end. Those of you who've lost loved ones, I look around and I see you. You've lost loved ones in the last months or the last year, the last couple of years. Let this encourage you today. Until Jesus rose from the dead, you didn't know there was life after death. But because Because there was no proof, right? But now we know. The Bible tells us God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. And we know that God will also raise us with Jesus. That's the promise he gives us. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And our resurrection is coming. You don't need to fear death because Jesus' resurrection shows us that death isn't the end of the story. That's that's the message of Easter. Death is not the end. And so, are you tired of being a prisoner of fear? It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or what you've done. There's forgiveness at the cross. There's more grace at the cross than there is sin that you've done. Always. And if you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, the door is wide open for you. The door is wide open here for you to be a part of this family. And to do that, all you need to do is put your trust in Christ alone for your salvation. I want to give you the opportunity to do that now. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the joy of the resurrection. We ask that you would help us to take the power of the resurrection into the center of our lives and let it change us. And let our light so shine before the people around us that they will see our good works and glorify you. We don't want to pretend. We don't want to just be all about people pleasing. We don't want to fear all the things that we fear. We want to let it all go. And Lord, I... If, if, if you need to pray and you need to receive Christ in your life and you've never done it, 
or you did it and, and, it, and you're so far away from it, you need to do it again, then pray this with me silently right now. Lord, I surrender everything that has brought me shame and regret and resentment and worry. I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to live a life of freedom. And so today, Lord, I confess my sin to you and I ask you to forgive me. Thank you, Jesus, that you made a way for me to be forgiven and accepted because of what you did on the cross and because of your resurrection. And so I submit to you as the Lord of my life and I want to follow you for the rest of my life. Fill me with your love and hope and help me to walk in faith, not fear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now may the God of peace equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him, all glory to him forever and ever. Amen.